1: A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry.
2: On today's program, we'll hear about an upcoming event in Scranton meant to increase self-esteem in girls and women. We'll also discuss how foster care and adoption are helping the children of northeastern Pennsylvania find stability, safety, and love. Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey joins us to talk about the tax reform bill he and his colleagues have constructed, and we'll hear from a contributor of the National Review about his brand new book that looks at World War II from his unique perspective. Based upon her observations and trips around the globe, Scranton psychologist Dr. Lauren Hazuri has decided it's time for girls and women to come together for a discussion on the power they really do possess, despite negative messages that sometimes make them feel undervalued. Dr. Hazuri is getting together with other leaders for an event at the Scranton Cultural Center on Sunday, December 3rd, that she hopes will make guests appreciate themselves and their contributions to society in a more enlightened way.
3: You know, I first started my own psychology practice, God, at this point, it was it was many moons ago. Um, you know, I started off in seeing a lot of girls and women. And what I realized is that um, a lot of their problems uh, were not unique to them, and I shared them too. And the thing that we had in common was that we were all female. And, you know, many people would come in with anxiety disorders, previously diagnosed, or depressive disorders, bipolar disorder, all of these these different symptoms that they were experiencing. And what I realized is that most of them were secondary to messages that we've all received from birth, to be thin, to be attractive, to be accommodating to be smart, but not too smart, (laughs) to be successful, but don't you dare threaten the social system. Like all of those things, and I think we internalize those things. And of course, they can kind of make us nervous or feel like we don't have very much control over our own lives. And while it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about things like that, I think now is the time that we need to start doing that, using our voices and coming together. And so that's what led me to start doing these different events.
2: From that perspective then, when you look at what you're doing, you're you're looking at more of a model of people helping people rather than people seeing a, a therapist or, or sitting in a waiting room waiting to see a therapist. How does that endanger your own, your own yeah, livelihood?
3: I'm, uh, yeah, I'm definitely at risk of putting myself out of business. And I hope, I really hope I do. No, there are definitely, you know, people who benefit from traditional psychotherapy. Without a doubt, it's a great process. Psychology works, you know, evidence-based treatments work, period. There are people who experience Clinical symptoms that need assessment and diagnosis and good proper treatment. But there are also a whole ton of us, most girls and women, who experience all of these things insecurity, low self esteem. Seven out of 10 girls, ages eight to 17, have negative opinions of themselves in some way. That's 70% of the population, you know, of, of our population. If 70% of girls is, are experiencing that, 70% of all girls are not going to traditional psychotherapy. But we all need these solutions. And so having these events brings us together. And we can really tap into who we are, get comfortable with being our true selves, recognize that we're not alone, and we can get the benefits of a lot of psychoeducation, learning these different things in a group setting so that, you know, we recognize that we're not the problem. Yeah, there is a problem, but we're not the problem. Instead, we're the solution.
2: We always hear about this now in the news because of so many events across the country where mental health issues are discussed and people say better access to mental health is the key to solving some of these situations how does what you plan to do dovetail into that
3: i mean i've definitely been an advocate for reducing the stigma mental health concerns and mental health disorders for sure but you know it's really difficult to do that because it's so ingrained and so instead of reducing the stigma out there in society so that people come in here into therapy what I've decided to do is just go out there you know and so I can't do traditional psychotherapy for the masses but what I can do is I can bring everybody together and so that they can recognize that wait a second this isn't just me I might not be crazy like holy god that's great news and I can also teach different evidence-based skill sets like when you have anxiety you might want to do these deep breathing exercises when you have anxiety there's this whole thing called deep muscle relaxation you can practice that and you can all practice it together let's do it now I can teach about cognitive behavioral therapy and how to change your thoughts and your feelings so you can change what you're doing I can teach all those things in a group setting to music and make it a hell of a lot of fun
2: (laughs) all right and when you do something like that I think what you do is you're teaching. People who then can be the teachers.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, right now, this this coming Sunday, um, we, we have a committee of 22 girls and women who are coming together who are going to be advocates for these different events. And so already empowering them to empower others because this has nothing to do with me, Lauren Hazori. You know, this is about the mission. And the mission is research indicates that girls' and women's confidence is extremely low there's always the confidence gap even then when we get into the workplace you know it's proven that girls and women only apply for a promotion when they have 100 percent of the qualifications while men apply for a promotion with 50 percent of the qualifications and so people are always so hell-bent on looking at why are girls and women so much less confident than men well the truth is it's because of the messages that we receive from the time that we're very small you know and they are really little to really big like a little a, a little thing i was just talking to a friend of mine the other day she has a little boy and she has a, a friend of hers who has a little girl same age both 5 years old and the woman is extremely woke and all about women's empowerment and all this stuff um the woman who has the little girl and my friend was bringing her son out on his scooter and he was out and he was doing all these tricks on his scooter and he was falling down getting back up and the and she said to her friend, "Would you like to bring your daughter out on her scooter too? You know, they'd probably have fun together." And she said, "Oh no, I only let my daughter ride her scooter in the house with her helmet on." That's, you know, something like that. Um the, you know, little microaggressions like, "Oh, you run like a girl." You know, like that's a that's a pretty famous one, but we we hear all those things, and those things definitely impact how we think, feel, and behave. So, you know, people focus a lot on the confidence thing. But confidence is a feeling of self-assurance that arises from your abilities or qualities. And I beg to differ. I think self-esteem is where it's really at. And that's what we're really going to target at these events, self-esteem. Because self-esteem is confidence in your own value. And that means, like, I have value just for being here. Like, I have a place here in this world, and my place here matters. And it doesn't matter if I'm a great tennis player or if I get 100% on this exam or or if I do get that promotion. It just matters that, you know, I am my purpose. I'm here. I have a place here. And I have value. And girls and women need to hear that because we don't get to hear it too often. This
2: kind of uh, self-esteem, self-confidence, whatever you want to say, may be particularly valuable to young girls right now who may be watching television with their parents, reading the paper, whatever. And they're seeing so many women coming forward who have been sexually harassed or touched inappropriately or whatnot. And they probably think, oh my gosh, is this what I'm to expect when I grow up. So I think when you work on a a problem like this in a time frame like this, you might be the right person in the right time frame.
3: Yeah, well I think, um, you know, everything's kind of been building to to this. I really look at what's going on now. This has always been this has always been here, you know? This has always been under the surface. We just haven't really been able to talk about it. We weren't able to talk about it, right? Like, I mean, 50 years ago, you and I wouldn't be able to have this conversation. Um, it just it just simply wouldn't be allowed. <laughs> um, but but now we're able to have these conversations because I really do think that times are changing. We are able to speak, we are able to use our voice, and I think that's, you know, it's a great thing and it's necessary for, for progress. As far as girls and women now and them being anxious or whatever, you know, I have a 14 year old daughter and never have I noticed what, you know, the way that girls and women are treated so much as I notice it with my own, you know? So of course I have memory of, of growing up and I have, and I am a woman, you know, I was a girl, I am a woman. So of course, like I've been in this society too, but when I notice it with my daughter, you know, so of course she is like growing into a young woman and people who are so well intentioned, you know, will say things like, oh, you're so beautiful. They better lock you up. And like things like that. And I'm like, um, what does that even mean? You know, I had my niece and my nephew out the other day. My nephew is two. My niece is five years old. And this lovely woman knelt down to the two of them and looked at my nephew and said, hi, buddy, how are you doing? And looked at my niece and said, oh, you're beautiful. As if that's the best thing a girl could be. You know, and so I think these are really little benign, like things that are well-intentioned. People don't have to be talking in the news um, about the sexual assault that's going on. They don't have to say Me Too in order for all of our girls and women to feel the effects of living in this society.
2: You've been uh, traveling quite a bit and doing this sort of work everywhere internationally. How are you received when you do this work somewhere else? I mean, how do the people respond to you when you speak to them?
3: Yeah, well, I mean, it's been uh, definitely cool and interesting meeting a lot of great women um, and girls, yeah, internationally internationally you know whether i'm in berlin germany or london england or new york city or scranton pennsylvania all girls and women have the same issues because it's all one society and we make up 51% of the population but social norms are not in our favor and so you know i did mention earlier you know thin and attractive and accommodating and smart but not too smart Successful but don't threaten the social system. I got those four different norms from a poll that I did of women at each of these places. And when I looked at all of their answers, honestly, there was only one that was different. Of all of the of all of the women, they all said exactly those four things about except one um, took out uh, the successful but not to threaten the social system and add athletic. Um, So that was the only difference. So it doesn't matter where we are, we're all experiencing all of the same things.
2: Talk about the event that you have coming up in Scranton and how people can
3: get involved. Oh, I'm so excited um, to be doing it here at home. The event is on December 3rd. It's a Sunday at 11 a.m. And the reason that I did it on a Sunday at 11 a.m. is because it's like going to church. (laughs) And it's not a religious experience, but a spiritual one for sure. My hope is that all the girls and women, all the people who come, you know, men are invited. This is free and open to the public. So everyone's invited, but it's all about girls and women and how we can stand in our power um, and really feel the value of who we are. And so I'm hoping that as girls come together and listen to these messages and listen to the music and dance and get all their free t-shirts and all that fun stuff, that they really walk out of there seeing society and even more importantly, seeing themselves differently. And so I have a ton of really cool girls and women who are helping out with the event I call them advocates because this is for a bigger mission. I'm hosting this event, but it's certainly not about me. It's about the message. So we're just planning to come together and talk about all this great stuff. It's called the ceremony at the Scranton Cultural Center, 11 a.m. on December 3rd. And the whole goal is to really recognize our value together. And the reason that I'm doing this is because I honestly think that there's nothing more important. You know, girls and women are critical for social change. Like we really are a huge benefit to society. And if we're not standing in our power, feeling our value and becoming all that we are and living our potential, all of society can't possibly do nearly as well. And so, you know, a lot of people say to me, oh, Sunday at 11, that's tough for us. You know, she has, we go to church at that time. Or, oh, Sunday at 11 is tough Like She has soccer at that time. There's nothing that's more important than this. If you are a woman or a girl or you have a daughter, um, there's nothing more important than teaching them how to increase their confidence, increase their esteem so that they can meet their potential.
2: Dr. Lauren Hazuri is a psychologist and founder of The Practice, revolutionizing the way that women and girls care for their emotional health. You are invited to join her at the Scranton Cultural Center on Sunday, December 3rd for a free event at 11 called The Ceremony. This is a time of year when many of us dwell in our families and the blessings they bring. Unfortunately, some children who live in our community still struggle to find their place in the world. There are solutions for them if foster families and adoptive parents step forward and get involved to become part of the solution. We recently visited the offices of Families United Network of Scranton, a non-profit foster care and adoption agency. We learned more about foster care from Mallory Evans, a senior case manager.
4: Families United is actually all over the state of Pennsylvania. Our specific office here in Scranton covers Lackawanna County, Luzerne County, Monroe, Schoolkill, Carbon, and Wyoming. Right now, we have two recruiters who deal with all of our foster families in those regions, and we have um, two caseworkers who go out and see those kids.
2: So it's it's hard, but it's what we do. So how does the, the process work with this situation? How do you find out that the children need to be fostered and then what happens? We contract with children
4: and youth agencies. So typically, like Lackawanna County or Luzerne County would call us if they were in need of a home and let us know about the situation and the child and then we call all of our foster families and let them know what's going on and then they can make the decision if that is a child that would fit into their their home
2: what are the requirements for a foster family do you have to be a family you have to be at least 21 you have to have
4: um, you know, a stable income so that you would be able to take care of a child. We have a wide variety of families. We have single families. We have um, moms and dads. We have two um, women. We have just men. We have a wide variety. And how do you uh, screen the individuals who are the families? We have a screening process that includes all of your clearances, such as FBI, state police, and um, child abuse clearances. We do local police checks. We do out-of-state clearances. Um, We do a very thorough background investigation, um, all of our families and anyone who's living in the
2: home. Talk a little bit from, from your experience of why people decide that they want to open their home to a child.
4: I think it's for many reasons. We have a lot of families who cannot have children of their own and would like to grow their family, so they would like to take the route of adoption or fostering. We have families who have been in foster care themselves growing up and they would like to give back or provide a home for a child that is in a situation similar to what they um, have. And then we just have families who want to help and are just looking to you know take in kids who need temporary assistance and a place to live.
2: When the the children um, are placed in these homes I know it probably varies but what typically how long are they there? It does vary some of the kids are just there for a short period a few
4: weeks and are able to be returned home to mom and dad which is wonderful Um, but unfortunately we do have some kids who will be in care for a few years or until they're adopted.
2: Talk about how uh, this is truly a need in our community and how it, it does benefit a child greatly.
4: I think it is a great need in this community. There are a lot of children out there who don't have a stable home life right now or who are coming into care and need a stable place to go and loving parents who are willing to help them out and provide for them. I think... All kids benefit from having, you know, a stable environment where that they can, you know, attend school and get the services they need and the medical that they need, so that you know they can become better people and grow to be great adults.
2: And I, I think in the long run, when you look at trying to stabilize the life of a child, it seems so important. Is that one of the reasons that you have so many people that step forward to do it?
4: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of people that we've talked to at this point, they've had some sort of involvement with foster care either themselves or a family member and see like they see how that affects them so they want to step forward to help kids to give them that normalization in life.
2: Someone's listening right now and they think, "Well, maybe this is for me. What 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 do you recommend that they do?" You
4: can actually just call our office. Our main number is 570 570- Three four zero one four four four, and you can ask for myself again my name is Mallory Evans or you can ask for Mackenzie Roshak, um, and we will help you get the ball rolling.
2: Mackenzie Roschak, Resource Family Specialist, explains some of the basics of adoption for us.
0: We offer a lot of adoption services to children that are going to be adopted. Um, child prep services which help children kind of understand their situation on an age-appropriate level and kind of help them to adjust to the changes that are gonna be happening. We also offer finalization services, which help the foster family through the adoption process, obtaining lawyers and all their legal documents. And then we also offer um, child-specific recruitment. That helps with children that are maybe in residential programs that do not have a forever family. So a worker helps them to broaden their um, search and hopefully find their forever family.
2: When I think about adoption, I always think it's such a, a joyful thing, but you just made me think about something is if you're a kid, you might be a little bit scared or apprehensive about what's going on. So how do you work through that?
0: A lot of kids, um, maybe due to their age, don't even understand it. So I think um, our biggest thing is to explain to them that they are going to be with a family that's going to love them and provide for them and even keep contact with that birth family if it's appropriate. And um, I think the biggest thing is just letting them trust the family and trust the workers that they have to know that we are setting them up for a lifelong happiness.
2: In terms of the the people who who commit to this, you know, sometimes they're fostering children and then they want to adopt. Is there a usual path to this or or not? I mean, do they they sometimes just grow so attached that they can't imagine life without these children, or or how does it work?
0: That's definitely how it works. Um, We have a lot of families that um, enter into a foster home situation where they're thinking that they're just providing short-term care um, and for whatever reason that ends up being something that goes toward adoption. Um, You know, they are caring for these children as if they were their own and of course attachment grows during that process. It's definitely um, something that you can obtain through foster care, which a lot of people don't realize. There is the small chance that they may go home and that may be the best thing for that child but at least you could say that you provided them as much love as you could while they were with you do you ever run
2: into situations where there are multiple children and someone says I'll adopt all these children.
0: Yes, and that's definitely um, something that we need right now. You know, the number one goal is to keep siblings together. Um, and I know we are in need across the state for families that would love to take sibling groups. You're already changing so much in their lives. So to separate them from siblings is something we try to stay away from. Um, so we do get a lot of great families that do that.
2: What's the largest number of children that you've ever seen adopted to, can you recall?
0: We had a sibling group of five go through, and we're currently working with one that has just four, yeah. So we do get a lot of big sibling groups, so if they have the room, and we love that they um, open their homes, it's awesome.
2: From going from the foster care to adoption, I imagine it's way more legal.
0: Um, Right. I mean, when you're first being approved as a foster family, a lot of it is just to make sure that you're a safe home and that you're a stable home. Once you go towards adoption, you kind of get into more legal aspects, whether it be obtaining a lawyer to complete the documents. And then as far as um, making sure that everything is covered with the county and the guardian at litem um, for the child. So it is more legal, but um, a lot of it is stuff that um, you're talked through the entire process. So
2: where's the age range for the, the kids that you place?
0: I mean, we see from newborn babies two weeks out of the hospital to 18 year old. You could technically, I believe in the state of Pennsylvania, stay in care till you're 21. Um, so we do get a lot of lot of age ranges. Yeah. I know
2: sometimes it's harder for older children to be adopted but is that something that you see?
0: Um, it is and you know what right now we do see a lot of people that want that younger age zero to six but then don't want their 11, 12 year old sibling and um, right now we're really looking for families that will open their home because a lot of these kids end up in residentials not because of behaviors or mental health issues but simply because of their age and it's it's sad.
2: For more information on Families United Network in Scranton, visit www.familiesthenumber4kids.org. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
2: All eyes will be on the United States Senate this coming week as their tax reform legislation is due for a vote. We got some of the details of the plan from Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, who has been deeply involved in the process. Well,
5: I worked on most of it. Uh, this, was, this has been a, a big uh, a project of mine for, uh, for some time now. Uh, but look, here's the thing that I think people should um, keep in mind. Two big ideas in this tax reform. The first is a simple, straightforward one. We're cutting taxes on virtually every middle-income, working-class family. The folks who get up every day and go to work and, and pay their families' bills and live paycheck to paycheck or have modest savings, those folks are going to get a tax cut. And that's a fact. That's in our bill. That's going to stay. The second big thing in our bill is we want to have competitive business. We want to be able to compete in a global economy against anyone anywhere in the world and be able to compete and win so that American workers are able to do more business. So our business reforms are comprehensive. It's the first time we've addressed this aspect of the tax code since 1986, and I'm convinced it's going to significantly increase investment in the United States, new business startup, existing business expansion, and new hiring with upward pressure on wages. I think it's going to be really, really good for the folks that I represent. So those are the two big things, and hopefully we will be able to get a bill across the finish line in the Senate sometime next week. That's the goal, and that's what we're working towards.
2: Some people say, though, Pat, that this uh, is uh, yet another uh, giveaway, uh, another kiss for the for the rich. And uh, yeah. how, how do you how do you uh, fight well, that? Well, <laughs> first
5: of all, let me make a simple observation. I learned a long time ago. That if a Republican gets up in the morning and pours himself a cup of coffee, there are Democratic congressmen who will accuse him of tax cuts for the rich. It is just reflexive. It doesn't matter. Remember, they were saying this about our bill before the bill was written. So that is what they say. I would just urge people to look at the actual facts. Go to our website. Go to the Senate Republican website. You can see the bill. You can see the summary. You can see the details. It is a tax reduction for middle-income. where It's it's a tax reduction for almost everyone, but the almost part really applies to high-income, high-net-worth individuals. There's a handful of folks in that category who might see a net tax increase by virtue of some of the things we're doing, but really virtually every hard-working, middle-income, lower-income family is going to see a tax cut.
2: And uh, now I I must ask you how long that may last for people, though, because I guess that's another criticism that we've heard is that it will be short-lived and uh, pretty soon uh, the government will be back at it, whacking people left and right with higher taxes.
5: That depends mostly on uh, whom we elect. I mean, you elect uh, tax hikers and they will will hike taxes. Uh, Republicans are not interested in that. Here's what we want to do. We want to make the changes to the individuals, the tax cuts and the simplification that is in our bill, for working people. We want to make that permanent. Our Democratic colleagues have not wanted to work with us on this overall project, and so we've had to use a procedure that allows us to pass legislation in the Senate with a simple majority. In other words, we've had to make sure that a minority of senators cannot kill this by filibuster, which is what the Democrats told us they intend to do. So in order to do that, we do have some unfortunate constraints, and those constraints are the reason that the tax savings for individuals expire nine years from now. But it's nine years away, and I'm confident that between now and then, we'll be able to extend that, and I hope we'll be able to make it permanent. That's the goal. All
2: right. And the other thing I was thinking about with this is that in the future, if the United States economy... Is uh, roaring. It would give people opportunity beyond these tax cuts. So, in other words, I, I, I don't want to use too much of a simple analogy, but this, to me, seems to be an instance where you want to like prime the pump to get the pump going uh, well, so that the water flows freely.
5: Yeah, I mean, you can look at it that way. This this is designed to encourage, first of all, the t- literally two to three trillion dollars overseas held in the subsidiaries of United States-based multinationals. We're going to take away the punishment that exists in the current tax code if you return that money to America. That's how ridiculous our current tax code is. If you bring that money home and invest it here, you get whacked with this huge additional tax. We do away with that. What do you think is going to happen with a lot of that money? A lot of it's going to come back home because we're eliminating this punishment that is currently uh, assessed when you do bring it home. That means investment. We're going to allow businesses, when they go out and buy new equipment, new vehicles, new trucks, new earth moving, new machinery, they're going to be able to deduct the cost of that in the year that they purchase it, which just makes sense. Well, guess what? There's Americans who work to make all of those things. There's going to be more demand for those workers. And then when companies buy it, they need someone to operate that equipment. That's going to be more jobs. So. The net effect of this is going to be to encourage expansion of existing business, creation of new business, all of which needs additional workers. And right now, nationally, our unemployment rate is about 4.1%. The real employment rate in terms of people who are underemployed is higher than that, but it's much, much lower than it's been in a while. The goal of this is to set off a bidding competition among business where they have to pay ever higher wages to get the workers they need that means a higher standard of living for the people I represent.
2: The addition of the uh, taking out of the, the health care mandate has been right. obviously met with uh, a lot of mixed emotions. A lot of people feel that that was kind of tacked on in there as, uh, you know, just a, a way to add something that you guys really want to get done. How does that um, dovetail into this bill?
5: Well, it's 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 yet another way in which we cut taxes, you know. So first of all, let's step back for a second. The people are my Democratic colleagues who are incensed and outraged that we would repeal the individual mandate. Here's a question for you. If Obamacare is working so well, why do people have to be forced to buy it, (laughs) right? Why do they need to be forced to buy it and subject to a tax penalty if they don't? If it's such a good deal, why aren't people perfectly happy to just sign up and take the deal? I'll tell you why, because it's not a very good deal for a lot of folks. So All we're saying is, look, if if you want to, we don't change the availability of Obamacare with all of its subsidies and all of its features, but we do say if you decide this is not a good fit for your family, then you don't have to buy it and you will not be subject to this tax. So the vast majority in 83% of the Pennsylvanians who pay this tax make $50,000 or less. It's the people who can't afford these outrageously overpriced insurance policies. We are no longer going to hit them with a tax. That is yet another tax cut. Of course, it sets the hair on fire for some of our colleagues who refuse to acknowledge the flaws of Obamacare.
2: Well, what they're also saying, though, is, is the critics of this, Pat, is if you do strip this out, it may mean the people who have Obamacare will be paying higher premiums in the future due to the reduction of people in the insurance pool. Is that right?
5: But What it will also do is it'll make it possible to have whole new categories of insurance plans which are outlawed now, and, and that creates the opportunity to have more competition, more services that people actually want rather than what they're mandated to buy by Obamacare so uh, I, I, I reject that idea. I think it's going to be much more responsive to what families actually want and need.
2: Okay, so what you're saying is that if this is done, there won't be that, uh, the, the, like, the qualifier for some of these plans. Because some people did lose their plans over this that they did like because of this. But that, the, the qualifier or the standard won't be there anymore. Is that right?
5: In time, you'll be able to purchase a, a very wide range of plans, including plans that are not allowed today. That's okay. the goal. When we get to that point, then we've got uh, we've got people back in control of their own health insurance, their own health care rather than a government bureaucracy.
2: What are the odds that there will be uh, legislation that is, I want to say, acceptable for both the House and Senate by the end of the year.
5: The tax reform, you mean? I, I think the odds are pretty good, definitely better than even. Uh, I don't know whether it's a you know seventy thirty or seventy five twenty five. I don't know exactly what the odds are, but look, the House has already passed the bill, and it's very similar in its structure. I think the Senate bill is is better, but um, you know, reasonable people can disagree about that. We have passed our bill, the Senate Finance Committee. Has passed it out of committee. Did that last week without a single Republican no vote. But the idea is to go to the Senate floor next week, where of course we will need to hold 50 out of 52 Republican senators, with a Vice President in the chair in case he's needed to break a tie. That's the next big step forward, passing it in the Senate. I think right now, as we as we as we chat this morning, Sue, we probably have. I don't know, 47, 48, maybe, maybe 50 votes for it. But there are definitely some Republican senators who have concerns. We're working. We've been working through this past weekend. We're working through this week to try to address those concerns, make changes if we have to, so that we'll have the 50 votes we need. And if we can do that, then our chances of reaching an agreement with the House will be very high, and we should get something done by the end of the year. The president is eager to sign it into law, so uh, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic.
2: Just one more thing before we let you go. Uh, Yesterday, the president named North Korea a state sponsor of terrorism. Your reaction to that?
5: Well, that's uh, an accurate description of North Korea. I mean, the fact is they do uh, support and sponsor terrorism. They are themselves... uh, Guilty of terroristic threats and the development of their nuclear uh, capabilities and their threats to uh, use them to attack America and American interests. And what this does is it enables us, uh, enables us to, uh, to help to coordinate global, ever-tightening global sanctions, which need to be imposed on North Korea.
2: That's Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey, who joined us this week ahead of an expected Senate vote next week on tax reform. You're listening to Special Edition. On Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
2: Re-examining World War II to ascertain the successes of the victors and the failures of the losers is at the heart of a new book by Dr. Victor Davis Hanson, who joined us recently to discuss the Second World Wars, how the first global conflict was fought and won. Well,
6: I tried to arrange it not by chronology, but by the way it was fought on the land, on the sea, in the air, and then tried to describe whether the decisions were the access of their allies to build things like a V-1 rocket or a super battleship like the Yamato were stupid, wise, or didn't matter. I also called it the Second World Wars, plural, because I, my argument was until the invasion of the Soviet Union in Pearl Harbor and the German declaration of war against the United States, all that happened in 1941. It wasn't known as World War II, it was just known as successful German wars, nine of them against Norway, France, Greece, Yugoslavia, and they won all of them. The world was basically at peace in May 1941. And then Hitler and the Japanese opened a whole new uh, front against Russia and the United States and Britain and the Pacific. And suddenly people said, you know, these, this is something new. It's, and the British called it the Second World War. We called it World War II. And they renamed the Great War World War I. And so I try to bring that out, and then I try to explain why the Allies won so quickly after 1941. They they won within three years, a yeah, global existential war.
2: I, yeah, I guess in, in uh, standard conflicts like the one that we've been in uh, since 2001, that is very short. But the casualty count, Dr. Hansen, was, this was, yes. I think, something that people forget. I mean, there was just such a massive, massive amount of death in this war, and many civilians, by the way.
6: I think we forget that. It's been 75 years since, say, 1942, and 76 since 41, and even longer since it broke out in 39. But uh, it was the largest catastrophe in the history of human experience. 60 to 65 million people died within six years. 27,000 people died every single day of the war, more than Afghanistan, Iraq, put together by a factor of five. And we forget that it was the first major war. There were far more civilians got killed of that 65 50 were not in uniform or not armed of the 65 million and it was the first major war where the losers the germans japanese italians lost far more than the winners in some ways the war was just a story of german soldiers and japanese soldiers killing 50 million people who were not armed or not in uniform in three places. Russia, 27 million dead. Uh, Eastern Europe, about 9 to 10 million dead. And China and the Pacific, about um, another 15 to 20 million dead, depending on uh, which account we, we choose to trust. So... It was a, a very strange war, but we have it all. You know, we don't think of it that way. That Germans and Japanese were killing about seven times more civilians than each soldier or civilian they lost, and they did it without much opposition in China and the Pacific, at least originally. And uh, I think we need to really. Think back when we hear revisionist history about Dresden or Hiroshima to see what was the context of those Allied retaliations. And it really was to stop this killing machine that would kill 50 million people.
2: Let's talk about uh, the the leadership of, of Adolf Hitler. And as you mentioned, the Germans must have felt pretty emboldened with their success rate, right? They must have felt that they could that they could dominate based upon what happened in the past. Where was Hitler, stupid-wise, and where didn't it matter in his planning, his strat planning with his, with his people? Well, he had
6: a hunch that even though the allies of that time, Britain and France, had larger armies combined, and more GDP and better weapons. They really did. But he felt that after World War One, they were exhausted. It was kind of ironic that the winners didn't ever want to repeat that ordeal, but the losers surely did and try it again and win the next time. So, British appeasement and French appeasement encouraged Hitler that even though they had greater resources, they wouldn't use them. Britain still had the largest navy in the world. And then when you add in the Russians after August 23, 1939, were actively colluding, Stalin had made a non-aggression pact. And the final piece in that trifecta with the United States was isolationist. So in Hitler's mind, he thought the British and French don't want to fight. The Russians are going to help me and supply goods and munitions and everything from oil to wheat and protect my eastern flank and the United States will never come in like they did in World War 1 and that gave him a lot of confidence and then when he his generals still didn't want him to invade cuz they were traumatized by World War 1 but after he defeated the poles and the Norwegians and the Danes and the Belgians of Luxembourg, and the Dutch and the French and the Yugoslavs, and the Greeks, he thought he was insto- unstoppable. And what he didn't calibrate was Russia was huge. It was uh, 180 million people. They had no European roads. It was far from Germany. And Blitzkrieg, that term we use for his lightning surprise attacks, wouldn't work against the Russians. And he had no ability to get to the United States either to bomb Detroit or San Francisco or land, much less land on the North American continent. And the Blitz had failed to knock Britain out of war. And so he really started an existential war with no means of attacking the will or the power to make war of his enemies. And that was quickly realized within three years, that blunder.
2: Let's talk about uh, our our entry into this war, which obviously uh, was through Pearl Harbor and that attack um, how reluctant dr hansen w- was the united states at this point i mean world war 1 was was very devastating to us and i guess a lot of people saw we were like you just said uh, you know these the, these places were so far away from the united states but then all of a sudden we had this, uh, and I'll ask you this because some people dispute it. What was the attack on Pearl Harbor, truly the sneak attack that FDR talked about in his speech to Congress?
6: Yeah, I think it was. I mean, there's a lot of revisionist history that say that we, with a wink and a nod, knew they were coming. But we didn't really. I mean, they, they did the impossible. We couldn't do it, even when the Doolittle Raid tried to reverse it. That was a 3,000-mile voyage of the Japanese Imperial fleet in the dead of winter uh, and refueling with a, in radio silence when they came all the way from Tokyo Bay all the way to off 150 miles off Pearl Harbor. It's never been matched, that feat of seamanship. And they really did believe, given the United States had not helped Britain and given that uh, it had not helped France and that the Pacific was wide open because the colonial powers had ceased to exist, the United States would not do anything and they felt they could catch the aircraft carriers, destroy them, destroy the battleships, and then the United States would sue for peace. And, of course, the carriers were not there, and they didn't hit the oil tanks. They didn't stick around to attack the machine shop. They didn't invade the island, and they had no ability to go another 3,000 miles to hit the shipyards in Oakland or San Diego. So it was just enough to get the United States angry, but it wasn't enough attack. Uh, of a magnitude to do much to the American ability to retaliate that's the stupidest thing you can do in a war is to start a global existential conflict with a power that has thirty times your GDP and over twice your population and you have no ability to harm it in the long run, but you do have an ability to get it very angry enough to uh fight back and the United States already had four engine bombers and within three years, they would have bom- about 12,000 bombers worldwide, and they would be able to bomb Japan from the the, the, Mar- the Mariana Islands.
2: Let's talk a, a little bit about the, the leadership of uh, England under Winston Churchill. Uh, before you came on the show, Dr. Hansen, we were talking about some of our modern-day leadership, and it doesn't seem to be as uh, cerebral and um, passionate, maybe, as, as Winston Churchill, who it really is a, a remarkable figure in in history and uh, really you know was one of the individuals who who really put up during this when others uh, were were not apt to. I mean, this guy was an amazing leader.
6: Yeah, he was. I mean, if he hadn't have become prime minister on May 10th, the first day of the invasion of France by Germany, uh, I think that after France fell, most of the British aristocracy would have quit. But he was a strategic, strategic geostrategic banker. And he asked himself questions. Is the Luftwaffe capable of knocking out the RAF, the, the British Air Force? And Germany's navy, is it able to land troops on Britain? Of course, the answer was no. So he said, why should we give up And he thought eventually they'll attack, according to the tenets of Mein Kampf, Hitler's sort of grand vision of world conquest. They'll attack the Soviet Union, and eventually the United States will come in. He saw all that. Hitler and Mussolini, to take two examples, were combat veterans, very brave fighters, but they they were corporals. And they had no administrative ability or no strategic vision, whereas Franklin Roosevelt had been... Assistant Secretary of the Navy in World War One and Churchill had been First Lord of the Admiralty, and they could understand how, when you go to war, what are your objectives, what do you want to achieve, and do you have the means to match your agenda? And, of course, they said, we have to go to Rome, Berlin, and Tokyo and physically eject these governments, defeat and humiliate their people, and demand unconditional surrender, whereas Hitler and Mussolini and Tojo, they had these surprise attacks and declared war, but they had no ability, again, to go into Detroit and destroy B-24 production or the Kaiser shipyards in Oakland or Manchester, England's production of Lancaster bombers. They just, they lived in a world of, I guess we'd call it surreal fantasy.
2: When you look at uh, today's modern landscape, and oftentimes I'm sure you hear the rhetoric that we are quote unquote on the brink of World War III. How do you feel about the, the climate, and if there is, is trouble, where do you think it will come from?
6: I, I don't think we are on the cusp of World War Three, but I think we have to learn from World War II that deterrence, that's the ability to convince an aggressor that it would be stupid to attack. is not just based on material resources. Britain and France had a greater army, a better air force together, and better ships in Germany. But they didn't convey the will that they would use them after the Munich agreements, for example, and five years of appeasement and the isolation of Americanism, um, isolation of America and the collusion of Russia. But what I'm getting at is Iran and North Korea need to know that our fleet is larger than all the fleets in the world today, and that our nuclear capabilities are greater than any other country, and our conventional forces are greater. And just because we pulled out of Iraq or we didn't do too well bombing Libya and leaving or were in a slog in Afghanistan is not a true reflection of the United States' power and will. So I think what we're trying to do right now is to tell North Korea by shows of force in the Pacific or tough rhetoric or even acting a little crazy and unpredictable, and and Iran is watching all this, that it's a very stupid thing to attack the United States because it will result in your destruction. But I think over the last 10 years or so, for a variety of reasons, both rhetorical and actual, people got the impression that the United States was very strong, but it either could not or would not express that strength, and they developed a certain contempt, whether it was reset with Russia or the Spratly Islands bases that China built illegally in the uh, South China Sea or the Iranian deal or... Uh, the pullout from Iraq or ISIS as is a JV organization, the Cairo speech. I'm not trying to pick on the Obama administration because Bush made a lot of mistakes as well. But I guess the the impression that was created is that uh, we were very strong, but we were not going to use that strength. And throughout history, that that earns a particular contempt from aggressors who say, "Well, if I had their power, I would really attack people." But uh, they're not even willing to defend their interests. I don't think that's quite accurate, but that doesn't matter. It's in the impression that these aggressors have.
2: Dr. Victor Davis Hansen is a National Review contributor and author of the new book, The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.